Hi everyone. Hi. How was your break? It was good. your break? It was nice. Everyone have a good break? <laughs> You're thinking? It feels like so long ago already. <laughs> Prue says Emery was kind of vicious. Yeah, it was, uh, in terms of actual games, it was kind of a revolution, so. Sorry. I mean, it happens, like, we can't, we're not going to win every game, we're going to have an off day. It happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, hi. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. What's your name? I'm Anna. And where, where do you go to school? Um, I go to Brooklyn Tech. Uh -huh. I'm just here for admitted students. Age. Yeah, no, I figured. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, welcome. Thank you. So uh, we're doing words words to prelude. That's great. Um, and uh, we should finish it today, but we have plenty of we have many weeks left, so that's okay. Um, so we were still looking at uh, book six at Simplon Pass and. Uh, we probably don't need to do much more, but it's just just to remind you, um, this is page 254, if you have the Norton, and uh, you can look on with my ex. Uh, why don't you all introduce yourselves to Anna? <laughs> Thank you. Hi, I'm Knuckle. Hi. Right. Mike, Arielle, Olivia. Sorry. Did I take your seat? No. No, no. Sorry. Um, oh. <laughs> and this is Tafara. This is Anna. Hello. Tafara is visiting. I mean, Anna is visiting. <laughs> Tafara, comma, is visiting Anna. Uh, do you um, mind if I use my phone to read on with you guys, or are you like a... Oh, that's fine. No, no, no. Well, obviously. Um, Some of my teachers. No, no. I made a strict no computer rule on the syllabus, so this is, <laughs> this is why not everyone is using their computers. Okay. <laughs> you know, an absolutely inflexible rule. <laughs> From the syllabus, it actually did sound... Quite in, inflexible if you read the syllabus, actually. Yeah, but who does that, right? <laughs> you, wait, you did read I did ignore it, I just also don't have a book copy, so. Yes. <laughs> I've noticed. Okay. Um, so this is just to remind you of that strange um, Alpine house after uh, the after they, they uh, find out that they've crossed the Alps and are on the other side, and they see that the strange um, prospect of, you can use your phone, it's fine. Um, okay. no, I mean, it's fine, I couldn't find it. Uh, yeah, I, don't think I don't think I really have college textbooks like that available. Okay. School, but. Um, so that night our lodging was an Alpine house, an inn or hospital as they're named, standing that same valley by itself and close upon the confluence of two streams, a dreary mansion, large, beyond all need, with high and spacious rooms, deafened and stunned by noise of waters. So just hang on to that phrase, noise of waters, which um, you all finished the prelude by now, right? Yes, enthusiastic roar of yeses. Like you're so proud of yourselves that you just can't keep it to yourself and you're saying yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> We loved it so. I loved it so. <laughs> okay. That's good. Um, making innocent sleep lie melancholy among weary bones. Um, so just to, to 
think of that as being like those moments that we've looked at before, the um, forms that do not live like living men or that do not move like living men in the 1850 version, or the um, mockings of the skill of the Winander boy when the owls don't mimic him mimicking them, and then he hears the um, silence uh, um, go far into his heart. And the, that strangeness, that otherness of nature, which we've been talking about as a kind of homelessness. So here's a place, a lodging, and that's another word to hang on to there. Here's a lodging in which Wordsworth, as I mentioned before in Dorothy's, Dorothy Wordsworth's journals, 20 years after this event, Wordsworth, um, she just writes about seeing that house which Wordsworth had described, which her brother had described as um, the scene of, uh, um, had, had, had described so terrifyingly. So that something goes on there, which is some very strange estrangement from nature, but also from some kind of lodging that would shelter you from nature and it's as though the shelter and the thing it's sheltering you from are equally estranged <coughs> from you. And then the way we were putting this last, the last week of our classes was um, that there's something fundamentally fundamental about nature as being a place of self-estrangement, not a place where... <coughs> humans find themselves estranged from a world that they've lost, let's say, if you were thinking of this in terms of Paradise Lost, and I know that um, you guys haven't um, finished it, and we didn't talk about the end of Paradise Lost, but you know the story, and the story is that Adam and Eve, and we looked at the very end, that is, that um, the end of Paradise Lost is like the beginning of the prelude. The world was all before them, where to choose that is, they can go anywhere in the world, Adam and Eve. The only place that they can't stay is in Eden. And then Wordsworth, alone at the beginning of the prelude, um, is also trying to choose where he shall make. Do you remember what he's going to make? What veil he'll make his home. His, his dwelling uh, his place. Dwelling. And then, yeah, what veil shall receive me as its home. Yeah. So it begins with him able to go anywhere and um, anywhere he goes will be at home. Should the guide I choose be nothing but a wandering cloud I cannot miss my way. And so he imagines the entire world as home as Adam and Eve are kicked out of their home at the end of Paradise Lost. Um, that's the loss of Eden that we saw at the beginning of Paradise Lost. Um, the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden. So Wordsworth is essentially trying to say at the beginning of the prelude, but then the harp was soon defrauded, that he's returning to Eden, that the world that is appareled with celestial delight is a world to which he can return. And then he finds out after 200 lines that this is as far as he could get without discovering that it wasn't so, that he wasn't able to continue singing. Yeah. At the beginning of the intimations, 
No, no, at the beginning of the prelude. Okay. Oh, so okay. the, remember, just to remind us, that the way the prelude begins is in the present tense with an assertion of how things are now. Oh, there is blessing in this gentle breeze. And he goes on celebrating how great things are and how he's now free. Now I am free and franchised and at large. And now he's going to be able to write poetry that he's been stuck in the city, he's been um, isolated, he's been unable to be in the Edenic place of nature. Now, obviously, we know from the intimations of that he realizes that nature is not Eden, that nature is the place that's supposed to make you forget the heavenly glories you have known. But let's just say that in 1805, these are all, I mean, the structure of a lot of these poems are the same, even though they're written in slightly different years. But in 1805, what what he's beginning, and he began writing the prelude in 1799, (coughs) 1798, actually. So there there are various um, versions of the prelude, and the three canonical ones, that is the three that people are sure existed as separate texts and are sure were um, at one time or another in Wordsworth's mind as a complete, as as the fulfillment of an ambition. So in 1798-99 he writes a two-part version of the prelude and some of the later stuff in the 1805 prelude, including the spots of time, which we're about to look at, and in the 1850 prelude, which also includes the spots of time, are already there in 1799. That is, the some of the stuff that you find later, that, that occur much later in the long version of the prelude, are there from the get-go. And one of them is the spots of time. The beginning of the 1798-99 prelude, the first version that he writes, it has an amazing beginning. Does anyone know what, what it is? What the first words are? Was it what? Was it for this that the German singer? Yeah, that's why I'm asking you. Like that. Yeah, no, it, what, that is why I'm asking. So, what do you think the word? No. Yeah, the first words are. Was it for this? First four words are. Was it for this? And then that the that the river uh, melted used to it, it's it's right in the middle of the of book one of the eighteen oh five prelude, but it's um, something like line three hundred. But what was this the reason that the Derwent used to love to meld its murmurs with my um, uh, meld its song with my infancy, and the this in the eighteen oh five prelude has a long antecedent which is I tried to write poetry and I couldn't. I went back home. I thought everything was going to be okay. I thought that I could return to Eden. I told a prophecy. I, I had the glad preamble. Remember the glad preamble is the section that begins and turns out to be in quotation. Oh, there's blessing this gentle breeze to um, how he's going to be writing all this verse now. And then the harp is defrauded and he can't go on and he says, I shouldn't get so upset that I can't go on. I should just be here now. But nevertheless, I don't know what to do and why this happened and let me see if I can figure it out. And then the introduction of the retrospective part of the prelude, which is then the whole prelude, is was it for this to get to this place where I can't write? Was it for this that I had the tutelage 
by nature that it's clear that I had. And was it really for this to end up as my not being able to fulfill my vocation? But the 1798 version begins with those words as though simply saying, was it for this? That this is the world as it is, the world that we all understand, the world which is a world that anyone who is old enough to be reading the prelude would understand immediately that that question is a question of a kind of shocked disappointment, that there I was, as there we all were, um, someone who felt the amazing focus of life, of love, of nature, of, of the universe as it is, just the way children feel that way, who felt that they were the best philosopher, the eye among the blind, uh, the figure for whom the world was absolute novelty. You know, again, just remember childhood, where you're surrounded by dull and... and um, Some, some, somehow um, strangely uninterested, blasé adults, but they have such fascinating things to say to you, and everything is so fascinating, even though they themselves are not fascinated by the world. Everything about it is fascinating to you. It reminds me of the episode of Game of Thrones yesterday. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm not going to spoil it, but like how... Children, when Jon Snow dies, and yeah, yeah. go. On. What you say is the children are more enthusiastic and yeah. more courageous and more like driven mm -hmm. than the adults. Yeah. Which was really weird. It's like the adults were like giving up. Yeah. They were like being swallowed by the darkness, but the children were like, no, there's like hope. Yeah. So I can really see like yeah, like children as like the carriers of like hope. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's always true. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say I see that even now in like just in the not necessarily political climate, but just the way we are in the US right now. You see that with like the it's kids in high school high schoolers who are leading a lot of the like like gun control things. It's the kids who are Yeah, really in Parkland. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, those kids in Parkland are amazing. Moreover, like tired almost like we're still mad about it but exhausted and they're Mad about it and have the energy. Yeah, or the kids who are fighting climate change in yeah, Sweden. Yeah, the girl that just won the yeah. Nobel Prize. Yeah, or she got nominated. Yeah, yeah, and who's what fifteen or something? Yeah. So, but so there is, there is this sense of um, disappointment with adults, but also surprise that people could turn into something like that. That people could turn that people who could actually do something have just lost their passion and become blasé, and every child, Emerson has a great line, Emerson who is probably the most Wordsworthian um, follower, that is the chronological follower of Wordsworth, um, and maybe the greatest of American writers, has a great line where he says, in a Wordsworthian mode, you'll understand this from Wordsworth, that childhood is the messiah that beckons us back to a lost paradise. And so the idea would be that everyone, you know, I mean, just think of Songs of Innocence now, that everyone is a child 
feels in one sense or another absolutely special and um, surrounded clearly by people who don't feel special. That is, no matter how scared you are of adults or you know, how fierce and ferocious parental um, disapproval is or the potential for parental anger or whatever, they, parents clearly think that they're just much more about conforming to the pressures and demands of fate than you are as a child. And um, children, very young children, feel different. And that is what Wordsworth is feeling, and that is what Emerson is feeling, and I think that's what most people feel. And then what Wordsworth is describing the intimations ode is that glory and the dream disappearing. And that's one way or one aspect of the glory and the dream. It's that everything feels new and novel and wonderful, and then when you're an adult, you remember that, and that feeling is gone. So Wordsworth, at the beginning of the prelude, is describing, like Emerson, he's describing that feeling as something like paradise. The lost paradise is Eden. So not heaven, but Eden, the Garden of Eden, and um, Milton's paradise lost means the loss of Eden, not the loss of heaven. Paradise always means Eden. Um, and technically, that's what it does. In, in the Bible, that's what paradise means also. We tend to confuse the idea of an afterlife or heaven as paradise with the idea of paradise on earth, which is what the historical paradise is. To call heaven paradise is to use the word metaphorically. So Wordsworth now is saying, as he almost says in Tintern Abbey, but not quite, that he is, has left the world in which he's lost um, all sense of vocation or power or novelty or celestial light. He's abandoning that world into which he was exiled and returning to home returning to a place that is not a place of exile. And he says that, and a timely utterance gives his thought of grief relief. That is, he utters his glad, his glad preamble, and he feels that everything is okay now. But after a little while, it turns out it isn't. And so the attempt to return to paradise is a failed one. And that's how the prelude begins, with an attempt to return to paradise and a sense that that attempted return is a failure. And then the rest of the prelude is a retrospection trying to figure out how from there we got to here. And if you think again of something like My Heart Leaps Up, which ends, the child is father of the man, and I can wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety, which is the second, the later epigraph to the Intimations Ode, the idea that the days are bound each to each would mean that there's something like a continuity between me and me now that I can see I'm still connected to 
there's still a lifeline that connects me to what I was. And I'm still, as Mark Strand puts it in a, po in his, um, in a poem of his, um, I am still the boy my mother used to kiss. And what he's discovering and what the moment of shock is, is to, is to feel that, no, I'm not what I was. I'm not, I thought there was a continuity there. I took it as a matter, I took it for granted, not even as a matter of faith, but I took it for granted that I w am still the person that I was 30 years ago or 20 years ago or whenever I was a six years darling of a pygmy size. I took it for granted that I'm still that person until suddenly I realize that I'm not that person anymore. And I don't know when I stop being that person. So what he's trying to do in the prelude is reconnect to his childhood, to see how he got from then to now. And in that reconnection, it's not only an attempt at figuring out what happened, it's an attempt at making a continuity, a binding each to each by natural piety, making a continuity of something that has suddenly seemed discontinuous. But the was it for this moment is a moment of absolute discontinuity. That is that you start and, and essentially the first, first words of the poem, the first moment of discovering a break from feeling part of your world or the center of your world is a sudden question that comes out of nowhere. Was it for this? With no antecedent for the this. That is, it's a sudden awareness of the thisness of the world, of the thisness of life, that this is the way things are. And that sudden awareness is a break. And I mean, just think about it. It's an absolute break, which unlike most breaks, doesn't show you the other side that you're broken from, right? That is that generally when there's a break, it's like that John Ashbery poem that I quoted for you. I thought things were going along pretty well, but I was mistaken. So there was the time when things were going along pretty well, and then there's, there's the discovery that they're not. Or there was a time when Meadow Grove and Stream seemed apparelled in celestial delight, or seems apparelled in celestial light, but now, no. Or, a slumber did my spirit seal, but now, no motion hath she now, no force. In all those cases, it feels like there's a before and an after, and what makes it feel like, the, like there's a before and an after is a break between then and now, so that that break puts a before, before the break, and an after, after the break, and after is, is, is the moment of now. But again, in all these descriptions that Wordsworth is giving, and Blake, those in the realm of the before, in the world of before, in the world of innocence, 
don't know that there's another place which is the world of after. You only know that there's a before after you've made the break. So you make the break and you're in the world of after, so it's after the break that you can now talk about those two regions. That's why you have first the Songs of Innocence and then not the Songs of Experience as though they're standalones because they're not, but the Songs of Innocence and of Experience. Yeah? Um, yeah I have a really weird question that I was thinking about during spring break. Mm -hmm. like, uh, like my generation, for example, like how we're sort of different, I feel, from generations that have come before us in that, for lack of a better word, like we're spoiled. Yeah, and no, we weren't. It's amazing <laughs> how we weren't. No, but just like, the <laughs> life is, like, the quality of life, yeah. comparatively, yeah. is so much better than the past. Oh, yeah. And it's like, we have, you know, a lot of times, so it's like, you know, you hear sometimes, like, the elderly say things like, oh, they have a lot of time. They don't have a war to go to. It's why they're like doing all these crazy things on Instagram and whatever. Yeah, they, they would have been doing stuff on Instagram <laughs> 70 years yeah, ago. Or like yeah. hashtag I'm in the trenches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, my point that I was trying to drive home was um, that is it possible that we can defy this dynamic of like, at first we are innocent, and then at some point we sort of become experienced. Because, well, not that we don't have like tragedies or like uh, catastrophic events like a world war that bring us to the state of dejection, mm -hmm. but yeah, sometimes I think that like, or at least when I'm going through the internet and I'm looking at memes and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, I'm doing the bare minimum or whatever. It's the like glorification of like idleness, mm -hmm. almost like that's on the in this generation of mine. If like we're gonna skip, and we're always gonna be innocent. Yeah, but I think that that all generations try that. And did you do that? Well, they all did at that age. I mean, some failed because of war or crisis or whatever. <coughs> it's not like it's available to all generations, but it, but it was certainly in, in some sense available to Wordsworth. And the, um, to, to any generation that can feel, or any, any group within a generation, any, any um, subset of any generation that can feel that um, things used to be, used to make sense. So I, I think I told you the Heideggerian phrase for this is thrownness. Um, that is that there's this moment when you um, realize that you've been thrown into the world. And, you know, that's a great concept, just the concept of thrownness. Mm -hmm. And um, the point, however, is that little children never feel that way. You can't really go up to a three-year-old and say, well, you've been thrown into this world more recently than I, so you probably have a fresher perspective on the shocking horror of um, finding yourself thrown here because the three-year-old would say, I beg to differ with you. My experience is rather incommensurate with yours, or worse <laughs> to that effect. Yeah. And I think one thing that really um, 
interesting about that is, I mean, for some people, there's obviously a moment where they wake up. Yeah. But it's not always, and in fact, I think a lot of the time, it's just like Wordsworth is looking back and saying, I don't even know when yeah. it was. Right. It was, a, it was so slow. I grew up so slowly that I felt continuous. But yeah, exactly. There, this, there must have been a break, but I couldn't feel it because it was imperceptible. Yeah. Which is really weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm focusing on, like, the third book of the prelude for my paper right now, and, like, I think it's really funny that you use the word idleness, because that, like, comes up so much mm -hmm. in that book, and, like, the idea that, like, he did exactly what you're talking about, where he's, like, and then I went, and I, like, pretended to be all frivolous, and, like, I had friends, but they weren't really my friends, they were just, like, people I called my friends, but we didn't really know each other very well, and, like, literally what you're saying that we do, that people, like, right, right. did that. <laughs> Um, I accepted every friend request. Yeah. And yeah. then, like, <laughs> the idea that, like, we haven't gone to war, or, like, we don't have, like, I don't know, like, I think about this with, like, I work with kids a lot. Um, like, I'm going to be, like, kind of a teacher this summer, and, like, kids come up to you and they're like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened right. to me. And it's like, well, I, like, fall off the playground or something. You're like, that's very, that's, like, not bad, but only because worse things have happened to you. Mm -hmm. So, like, to them, it really is the worst thing. And so I think it's not about, like, well, we didn't have that horrible thing happen to us, but it's like, but within your life experience, that's still the worst thing. So you still gain experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, so now there's, like, this element of relativity. Yeah. Of relative, yeah. Yeah, of, like, relativity. So it's not, like, a thunderstorm that comes at, at some point in everyone's lifetime, like, okay, there's no meaning to life. No, but it's like a slow. Well, that's the thing. I think that's the thing that Max is rightly finding weird, and that Wordsworth is trying to describe, which is that there is a. If you say, "Was it for this?" and you all understand that there's no what it means to say there's no antecedent to that. That is that um, I hope when you write papers and you say this proves that um, blah 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 that your um, teachers will say and will circle the this we don't circle anymore we'll highlight the this and write antecedent in the margin um, and we hate that we students hate that because it's obvious what the antecedent is it's the argument I've just made. Um, However, it's really good to have a noun after the this, like um, this, this outcome proves that whatever. But Wordsworth simply has, it's not, was it for this experience of trying to write a poem and failing that, um, but there's a this without an antecedent. And what that means in a poem is that the this is what it refers to is so obvious that it doesn't need an antecedent at all. That is, it is so close and so familiar and so unsurprising. Universal. And then you could say universal, but he's talking about his own experience before he universalizes it. But for him, it's, um, I don't know, just think of some time when you're just going along doing the stupid chores you have to do and suddenly what pops into your head is, I can't believe this shit. And um, it's like somehow that was building up. The idea that all this, all this shit was surrounding you was building up, building up, but then there's a snap. 
And it's not like, oh my goodness, I thought I was walking through roses or through, pan through pansies, but um, <laughs> it all turned out to be shit. It's you allow yourself to be aware of what you are already aware of. Some of you may know that Nietzsche um, has a really interesting observation, which is important to experimental psychology, which is if that noise were to go off, we're not paying any attention to it, yeah. but if we're going to go off, we hear it. And so there's something odd about hearing the cessation of a sound that you haven't been hearing. So here's the sound. We're hearing it. We're paying no attention to it. Um, and if it goes off, then it sounds like a sound. That could wake you up. Um, you know how your grandparents fall asleep in front of the TV and you don't turn it off because if you do, they'll wake up? So it's a change where suddenly you become aware of something that you've been aware of all the time. It can't be that you become aware of it because it stops. It's that somehow psychologically your awareness reaches a tipping point, and the tipping point may be when it stops. Um, it's been tipping, let's say, and it stops tipping. But that what happens with awareness is that you're aware of things until you become aware of being aware of them, and then your awareness of them changes. And becoming aware that you're aware is a little bit paradoxical, because how can you be aware of something anyhow without being aware of it all the way down? But nevertheless, you become aware of things. So for Wordsworth, the this is what he's aware of without being aware of it. Where is that line again? That's the be where is it in the um, 1805 prelude? I it's forget. It's line 273. Of um, which think. book? Line 273. It doesn't oh, in the first book? Oh, oh, of the f actually, let me say. I have the... So was it wasn't for this. I have the, the 1798. It's the first one. Yeah, that's line one. Yeah. It's and the first book, yeah. It's 1992. Yeah, let's go. Um, yeah, just read it. Read what comes before it. Read what comes before it. Yeah. There's a lot that comes before it. No, all right. Um, start, <laughs> start at line one, and then, no. Um... This is my lot. Yeah, that's good. Um, start with Odur. Um, sorry, what did you say, line 278? 1973. Oh, sorry. No, 274. Um, yeah, why am I not finding it? Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, yeah, start with um, Ah, Better Far at line 255. Ah, uh, better far than this. Better far than what? Than this. <laughs> yes. To stray about voluptuously through fields and rural walks, and ask no record of the hours given up to vacant musing, unreproved neglect of all things, and deliberate holiday. Deliberate. It's an adjective. So notice that asking no record means that he's not keeping track of it. It's all background without the necessity of specifying it or being aware of what he's aware of. Mm. Okay, go on. Far better never to have heard the name of zeal and just ambition than to live thus baffled by a mind that every hour turns recreant to her task. Take so what's her, wait, what's her task? What task was he talking about? Writing. Writing, yeah. So this is how he can't write. 
is what he's describing here. Um, zeal and just ambition would be zeal and just ambition. To write something great. Right. And do how many people know the poem Lycidas? So what am I thinking of, Ryan? How he's coming to pluck the laurels too soon. Well, at the beginning, yeah. But, um, but that, so it begins in, in a moment of loss. But um, it's, ah, what boots it with incessant care to strictly meditate the thankless muse? Um, were it not better as others use to sport with Amaryllis in the shade? That is, here I'm trying really hard to write a poem, and what is the point? Wouldn't it be better just to hang around um, smooching in the shade and um, enjoying myself in idle voluptuousness than to try to write a poem, especially since he goes on in Lycidas, so this is Milton's um, second great poem, especially since as he goes on in Lycidas, um, the if you do manage to work really, really, really hard and write a good poem, then you die. It's like you work and work and work, and then you die. And so what was the point? Um, haven't you wasted your life? Even if you're a successful poet, haven't you wasted your life working really hard trying to write poetry when you could be having sex and eating tuna sandwiches the whole time? And um, Phoebus, the god of poetry, then says... You may die, but you will still be famous, and your poems will be praised. And that is worth it. That is, the fame and the praise that you will get for what you've done is worth the time you've put into it, even if you're not there to know about it. Yeah? Um, <clears throat> I, it reminds me of like, the Blake, well, when we talked about Blake and how it's like, yeah, this, like, I'm dying, but the real man is in the imagination. Mm -hmm. I'm dying. Yeah. So, like, like, the point you're talking about, about, so why should I, you know, write poetry mm -hmm. um, instead of enjoying my, living my best life? Yeah. And I think it's about, like, would Blake, would, would Blake say that it's, like, about, like, transference? So, like, making sure that, you know, I am infinite and I don't die. Because, mm -hmm. well, he says, like, yeah, to love, Anything that loves is infinite, mm -hmm. or something like that. And it's like, so is it an exercise in immortality then? Well, it's, that's how Blake would read Milton. Um, but what Milton is, seems to be saying, and it's not clear whether the speaker of Lycidas is convinced by this, um, but what Milton seems to have Phoebus, the god of poetry, say is that doing something that matters matters by itself even if you're no longer there for it to matter to. And that knowing that you're doing that sort of thing, it should be incentive enough even if you'll never know whether you've succeeded. I mean, there, there, there's, there are really interesting thought experiments about this. Um, which is, for example, let's say you had a choice of, let's say the, the, this is an idea that Robert Nozick had, which is that you could have an experiencing machine. And what an experiencing machine would be is a kind of virtual reality 
where you would actually enter in for the rest of your life into another world where your past will be different from what it is. And let's say you enter into another world where you will be, um, if, you're, if you want to be a poet, in this virtual reality, you will have written really great poetry and you will have the exact experience, emotional, mental experience, that a real great poet would have in this world if they'd written great poetry. And um, let's now say that in this other world, um, you could not only have that experience, but you could also add to that an experience that most really great poets in this world don't have, which is that people will recognize how great your poetry is. And so you'll have the experience of being recognized and the experience of being um, praised. And you'll believe it entirely. It'll be 100% belief. So before you go into the experiencing machine, you don't know. I mean, you know that it's not true, but it's like the blue pill. Um, when you take the blue pill and go into the experiencing machine, you live a virtual reality where you completely forget the truth and you believe with 100% belief that you have written great poetry and that the world is thrilled by it and that you will feel your life to be as deep as if you've actually written great poetry and you will feel that the world's understanding of you would be as deep as if they actually had read and were amazed by your great poetry. Um, or you could just take the red pill and stay in this world and write a poem, and write a poem <laughs> as, as good a poem as you can do, which might not be very good, and um, with no idea about whether the poem will work and with no idea whether anyone will appreciate it. But you'll write a real poem, and you will actually put energy into writing a real poem, and you will work on it. So what do you pick? How many people would go into the experiencing machine, and how many people would just take their chances um, with the 100 million other people who are trying to write real poems and try to write a real poem? What would you do? You'd write a real poem. What would you do? The poem. And rewrite the poem. Okay, well, so, so what, what are, well, so you'd go into the experiencing machine or would you still? I don't know. Like the whole face thing freaks me out a lot. Yeah. I can't just say I would just like take the red pill and just be like, okay, I'll just be my best. Because there's better options. Well, you mean better, other things you could do? Yeah. Like what? Well, what, what would you want to do at your most idealistic? Or is that too personal a question? I don't know. This is getting, it's getting personal because okay. of uh, job searching and stuff. No, I don't, that's not your so. most idealistic. The most, the most idealistic job that you can have is um, working out the mathematics of what will stop climate change tomorrow. Right? Okay, okay you do that? Sure. Or would you go into a machine that would make you think you did that and the world would be so grateful? And you'd think that for you know another 50 years and then you'd but die. it didn't actually happen. Yeah. Okay, fine, I'm saying this world. Okay. Yeah. yeah it, going with that example, with the climate change thing, if I know that it's just going to be that I'm going to think it and the world's going to think it, it's not, it's not going to make an actual difference. Like it, it'd rather work towards someone finding a solution mm -hmm. than have one think that I did. Okay. Or like the whole argument with like with climate change is like um, 
individual choices, like, do they really matter? Mm-hmm. Or is it, like, just a drop in, in the ocean? Like, <clears throat> if I use a metal straw instead of a plastic one, does that really make a difference? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, no, and that, that's certainly a, a question. But here, here the question is simply, do we do things because, I mean, it, it's a way of asking what motivates us to do things. So, Is it the feeling or is it the act that we really did it? Yeah. Just the knowledge that we actually made something that yeah. was real. Yeah. And, but the knowledge makes you feel a certain way. So on yeah. some level it has to be the feeling. Um, and yet it sounds like most people are saying the feeling, even if total, isn't enough. What would you do? I would assume. You would not. What would you do? Um, I don't know. <laughs> you might go into the machine and just feel like you're a great poet without Would it one. be permanent? Yeah, it'd be the rest of your life. Yeah, that's weird. But I think it would... It'd be, be a much too... happier rest of your life. Yeah, but... I don't know. It's too creepy. <laughs> but you wouldn't know it was creepy. That's part of the deal. Okay, so you, you would, wouldn't... You wouldn't take a blue pill either. to not know that, and that... Yeah. You know, yeah. making the decision to do that is what freaks me out the most. Like, I mean, I... Physics because my whole thing is figuring out the problem, like mm-hmm. making a decision where I know that I'm not going to know the actual truth anymore. Yeah. Okay, so I think what everyone is describing is something fundamental to the idea of vocation, which is <coughs> that it has to be a vocation for something real. Um, did you read The Secret Miracle? Yeah. So, do people know this? I was actually going to bring it up. All right, bring it up. Um, So, a guy is about to be killed by a firing squad. It's a Borges story. He's literally about to die. It's the minute that he's going to die. They're about to fire. They do, I think, actually, the bullets are in the air, and time freezes because he's asked God to stop time for a year. And time stops, but he's stuck in his own mind, and he can't move. So... He has a year to be in his own head and to finish his great, his great poem or his great piece, his great novel. Yeah. Uh, and he takes a whole year in his own head, writes the whole thing out, plans it out, and the second the year is up, um, the bullets fire and kill him. And he never wrote it down, but it's in his head. But the last phrase, the way Borges describes it, is a final hexameter slipped into place, yes. um, which means he's got the last line, which is in hexameter. Um, and it was done, and then the bullets hit him and he dies. So that's why it's a secret miracle, because no one knows about it. So that's the opposite of what Nozick is talking about. That is, that no one knows. He has no, none of the experience of um, people reading his work, people praising it, fame, any of that. None of it happens, but the work is done. So that's a story about vocation. Yeah. And... Um, you know, it's an, it's, it's an oft-remarked and interesting fact that um, the concept of happiness is an odd one because we all will describe other people's motivations as um, they do things. One way of describing why people do what they do is they do what will make them happy. Um, but you would never describe yourself that way what you would say is something like, what I want to do is be a writer, or what I want to do is be a physicist and find out um, how the universe works. And if I said, look, I can offer you happiness, um, but you would have to do something else, but you'll be happy, you'd say no, right? I mean, that's what all of you just said. 
is I gave you an, a way to be happy, and that way would make you happy, and yet you wouldn't pick that way, even though I would guarantee that it would make you happy. You wouldn't pick that way because happiness itself is not an internal goal. We can describe, when we say other people do what they're doing because it makes them happy, um, that is a judgment or an external judgment about what it is that they like. The reason she is a computer scientist is because coding makes her happy. But that doesn't mean that she said, I would like to be happy. Let me think about what would make me happiest. Um, well, I kind of like coding. I bet that would make me happy. I'll be a coder. It's rather, I like coding. God, I love coding. And then I can say about her, she loves, coding makes her happy. And she codes because it makes her happy. But that's an <coughs> external description of her motivation. We don't do things internally. We don't say, this will make me happy, therefore I will do it. I mean, we do when we're choosing what to major in or whatever. But it's um, not in specific moments. So here, what we're, what we're describing here is vocation. And vocation is what you want to do and what you want to make real. And the sense that it's real is crucial to vocation. So there he is. He's not um, recording the hours given up to vacant musing, unreproved neglect of all things and deliberate holiday. It's just happening. OK, go on. Far better to start start there again. Okay. To, um, Far 60. better never to have heard the name of zeal and just ambition than to live thus baffled by a mind that every hour turns recreant to her task. Takes heart again, then feels immediately some hollow thought hang like an interdict upon her hopes. So interdict means what? Footnotes? Prohibition. Yes, some, something. Uh, interdict yeah. is um, you're not allowed into this area. It's a no trespassing sign or, yeah, a prohibition. Go on like an interdict upon her hopes. This is my lot. That is f finding um, that uh, I can't do my task. I can't write poetry. This is my lot. For either still I find some imperfection in the chosen theme, or see of absolute accomplishment much wanting, so much wanting in myself that I recoil and droop and seek repose and indolence from vain perplexity, unprofitably traveling towards the grave, like a false steward who hath much received and renders nothing back. Does anyone know what that's about? The false steward? The, the, the parable? The parable of the... Um, is it talent? Yeah. Do you know how the parable goes? Yeah. How God gave... Uh, is it three men? Yeah, it's a, the, a master gave three yeah, servants. A master gave three servants talents. Yeah. And then a talent is a unit of money. That's literally what a talent means. We use talent metaphorically when we talk about the talent to tenth or whatever, but it's literally a unit of money. So go on. Um, and then he tells him that he's going to go away, and he comes back. He sort of wants to see them having done something with their talents. And then the other one, I don't know what exactly he does, but some form of investment, and then he gets more. Yeah. And then the second one gets... Like an amount that's like less than the other one, but he still does some more investment. Mm -hmm. And then the third one doesn't do anything with his talent; he just buries it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then when the master comes back, he's angry 
at the one who was idle because it's like I gave you this and then when I came back you just gave it back to me like you did nothing with it. Right. And then he's punished it for Yeah. So basically, um, there it, it matters that there for the parable it matters that there are different amounts amounts of talent. So um, the servant um, the servants are given one is given one talent, one is given two talents, and one is given five talents. And when the master returns after a year, the one who's been given five talents has turned those five talents into ten talents by judicious investment in IPOs. The one who's been <laughs> given two talents has turned the two talents into four talents. Um, so they both doubled their original stake. And um, it's not how much they give back to the master. It's what return the master gets on what he's given both of them. And the return on both of them is 100%. The third one who's been given one talent simply protects that talent. He buries it so that he'll be able to give it to the master back when he comes. And he gives the single talent back. And the master says, as Tafara says, um, you blew it. Um, these other two were given talents, and they did, given the talents they had, they did what they um, could with those talents, and they did well. You don't have to be a saint to get into heaven. If you are given a hard lot and you make the world a little bit better, you will get credit, even as much credit as a billionaire would get who made the world $2 billion better than he found it. So it's not how much better you make the world. It is, I mean, this is one way of describing the point. It's did you take what you have and use it as well as it could be used to make the world better? But the one given the one talent did nothing with the one talent. It's not like he could have done much. He was given a metal straw. And um, instead of breaking it in half so that he now had two metal straws, he still had only one metal straw. So it's not a big difference. He would only be responsible for not having prevented one plastic straw from going into use. Um, but he didn't do it. So he's the one who's in trouble. And the, the point about this parable is God gives you talents. Use them. Don't hide them under a bushel. So Milton has a famous sonnet about his own blindness, which you know, Wordsworth is thinking about Milton every second of the day, as you can probably tell, um, that, um, which, which is about his blindness, um, which he wrote at around the age of 34. When I consider how my light is spent, is this familiar to anyone? When I consider how my light is spent ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent, which is death to hide, lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve therewith my maker. Doth God exact day labor, light denied, I fondly ask. So he's pissed. He's blind. He's pissed at God. God gave him a talent, but he can't do anything with it because he's blind. And he says, is God, that single talent, that one talent which is death to hide, as happens to the servant who hides his one talent, 
God gave me that talent, but it's lodged with me useless. I can't do anything with it because I'm blind. And so I ask an angry question. Doth God exact day labor? Do I have to be a day laborer, light denied, when I'm denied light itself? So that's the angry question that's the first um, part of that sonnet. And so here what we have is the false steward who hath much received and renders nothing back is on some level Wordsworth thinking, unlike Milton, I'm not blind. Unlike Milton, I've been given much and obviously I could write poetry and yet I keep not doing it. And I feel really guilty about it. And then he asks, Was it for this that one, the fairest of all rivers, loved to blend his murmurs with my nurse's song, and from his alder shades and rocky falls, and from his fords and shallows, sent a voice that flowed along my dreams. Okay, so stop there. So was it for my for this absolute failure to write, to do anything with what was um, given to me, to the talents that were given to me? Was it for this that I was given a childhood which is the perfect childhood for a poet. I was given everything that a poet should need to be able to write poetry. And look at me. I tried to begin, the, I tried to begin this poem and I failed. And I was given everything that someone should need. So that's the this in the 1805 prelude. In the 1798 prelude, it's just this without any antecedent. As though what you have in the 1805 prelude is he's working his way back to what the this is, but it's the moment of becoming aware that, let's say, the poetic buzz in the background has stopped if that fan were to go off. It's like here I am. And so that's why in something like A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal, um, he's sealed. He doesn't know. He can only say after the fact that a slumber did my spirit seal. We talked about the past tense there. That past tense is really important because it's not as though there was a time when I wrote ah, I have no human fears because she is a thing that cannot feel the touch of earthly ears. He never said that. He never wrote that. The first stanza is not a journal of the past tense, or rather a journal of the past. It's not a record, not a diary entry. You know, imagine that you're reading a really crappy novel which begins, which is in the form of a diary, and it begins something like, um, June 4th, 1797, I feel like life is a wonderful sleep. I feel this way because Lucy is a thing, so it seems to me, that cannot feel the touch of earthly years. Um, it's wonderful. Then 
what do you know is going to appear in the second entry? Just back from the graveyard to bury Lucy. No motion hath she now, no force. So, but the point is you don't have the diary entry for the, there's never a present tense version of what can only be described in the past tense in the first stanza of the slumber did my spirit seal. Does everyone get what I'm saying? Does that make sense? The part that's good is a part that the very goodness of that part can only be seen retrospectively. So when you say, was it for this, it's when that's the moment of retrospection. The this is the sudden realization that things are not now as they have been before. And during the before, you weren't thinking about how things were at all. Children don't say, it was for this that I am happy to be born. Because they're not thinking about it. The this is the interruption. The sense that there's a gap between now and then. And part of that gap is that what defines the now is the ability to understand that there's a gap. And what defined the then was that you don't dream of the possibility of such a gap. It's not even on your radar. So the difference between now and then is that now you know that there is a now and that there was a then. And then you didn't know that there would be a now later on to contrast with the then that you were in. It's, I know it's a little bit hard to keep the tenses straight there, but um, I hope that makes sense. So Wordsworth is persistently and amazingly doing the difficult task of describing the moment of becoming aware that things are different without having recorded what they're different from. Of becoming aware that there's a this without anything before the this. Now, if that seems too sudden, I think it's radical and amazing that he began the 1798 prelude there. But if it seems too sudden, and it may, he can begin it instead with an apparent present tense version of the then. Oh, there is blessing in this gentle breeze. But that turns out to be him quoting now what he now thought then was like. Because he obviously, well, we don't have to go there. Um, so loss of Eden is where he starts. Another line from Emerson, it does not matter whether it come about by two or three or four steps according to the genius of each, but for every seeing soul, there are two absorbing facts. I, that is the capital letter I, and the abyss. So what Emerson is saying is that at some point, if you can see, if you are a seeing soul, if you have vision, you discover that there are two absorbing facts 
yourself in the abyss. That's it. It does not matter whether it come about by two or three or four steps according to the genius of each. But for every seeing soul, there are two absorbing facts, I and the abyss. What's the abyss? The abyss is the nothingness of this. Oh, okay. So at some point, those are the two absorbing facts. And it may take two or three or four steps. And in those two or three or four steps, you're not saying, well, here I still am, and it's all fine, and no abyss around me now, it's all good. <gasps> the abyss. It's that the very idea that there's an abyss comes about without it being something like, it can never be negated. No one can say there is no abyss because they wouldn't know what they were talking about. You can only talk about the abyss when you know it. And that's the now rather than the then. If you don't know about the abyss, then you're a child. Right, exactly. Uh, children can't say there is no abyss because they don't know the abyss. Exactly, exactly. So, Wordsworth then is beginning the prelude by saying, back to Eden. Unlike Adam and Eve, I can go back to Eden. And then he finds that he can't. And what he then, in this moment of retrospection, which begins there, which is so the Derwent comes and um, um, blends his murmurs with my nurse's song, and then I talk about how the Derwent came from the, t- from the hills, left the mountains, and came to the Towers of Cockermouth, and I was a five-year's child, and we were happy, so now he's launched into his childhood. Um, but he's launched into his childhood when he says, look at this, and look at how we got here. So how did I get here? And that's when he begins the retrospection, which is the body of the prelude. Okay, so then in book six, we get this odd and strange, I just want to see what time it is. Um, okay, um, this odd and strange um, uh, alpine house. Um, we should look just very briefly at the spots of time in book 11. Um, so this is, um, let's go to this page 353 or so. Um, Saying 258. Yeah. Um, there are. Yeah, yeah. So he's described a couple of spots spots of time before then. Um, and um, yeah, let's just go straight to line 258. Um, someone want to read that? Starting in line 258? Yes. Oh, cool. There are in our existing spots of time which with, distant, with which a distinct preeminence retain a renovating virtue whence depressed by false opinion and contentious thought or odd of heavier or more deadly weight in trivial occupations and the round of ordinary intercourse our minds are nourished and invisibly repaired, a virtue by which pleasure is enhanced, that penetrates, enables us to mount when high, more high, and lifts us up when fallen. The efficacious spirit chiefly lurks among those passages of life in which we have, in which we have, had, the, in which we have had deepest feeling that the mind is lord and master, and that outward sense is but obedient servant of her will. 
Such moments, worthy of all gratitude, are scattered everywhere, taking, talk, taking their date from our first childhood, in our childhood even perhaps our, mo our, most, our most conspicuous. Life with me, as far as memory can look back, is full of its beneficent influence. Beneficent. Okay. Beneficent influence. So very quickly, um, paraphrase. I kind of just read all that aloud. Yeah, I know. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard to pay attention when you're reading aloud. Um, so what's the spot of time then? Um, so this is, are you looking yeah, at the 1805 prelude? Yeah. Not the 1850? No, I think it's, yeah, this is the 1805. Okay, so line 258 of book 11. Okay. Well, we have the books, like book 10 and book 11. No, so you have a parallel text. So look on the left-hand page for book 11. Oh. The left-hand page should be book 11, not the right-hand ah. page. Okay, no pressure, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. So then the phrasing is a little bit off. <clears throat> yeah, you're in, you're in the 1850, I think. Yeah. Okay, so what were you going to say, Nicole? I think are these spots of time, like in the intimation zone, when he believes, when he believes he's able to go back to his past, but he is in? Yeah, there are certain privileged moments that um, somehow stand out against everything else. Like, remember the eagle's feather in memorabilia? Um, there's a, there's a, I crossed a moor with a name of its own and a certain use in the world, no doubt. Um, and there's one hand's breadth that still shines because that's where he found the eagle's feather. So in your life, they're, they're privileged moments. Um, moments that, memories that you return to that still fill you with, um, some um, powerful feeling just to remember them. Not bad memories, not, oh my God, I can't believe how unfair he was to me that day. Um, but memories where you had some kind of revelation that was so powerful that even as it fades into the light of common day, you can in a moment travel thither, that there are embers that still live within you. And for Wordsworth, those, here he's calling those spots of time. And that idea of these moments, there's a, um, you can sometimes feel that you're having them when you're having them, too. But the idea that there are these moments that, um, whose exaltation will matter all your life, that's what he's describing here. Um. Yeah. Is it like No, I think the spot here, it is a, you're right that it's a really weird word, the word spot. Um, and it's almost as though it's, it's like the French tache, that is something, um, something that dirties or besmirches. And um, it's an odd phrase for that reason, and especially with the other Macbeth echoes. You might think that, and maybe you have a paper topic there. But I think the first um, obvious meaning is more like spatializing time. That is, um, spot in poetry generally means, I'm not sure how um, categorical I want to be about this, 
but I would say spot in poetry generally means um, a privileged point in space. Um, that is, um, you know, this is the spot where I met your mother, or um, this is the spot where um, I, I suddenly knew my vocation, something like that. Um, so a spot of time would be an odd metaphor where time is being spatialized. And the reason to spatialize time would be because it means that it's not behind you. It's in the world with you, the way things in space are. The difference between space and time, in case you were wondering, physicists, um, the difference between space and time is that you can't return to any um, point in time because it's gone forever. I know it isn't, but it's gone forever. Um, whereas in space, you can go back and forth. You can go to room 347, and then you can go back <coughs> to your room, and then you can come back to room 347. When Wordsworth tries to go back, let's say, to Tintern Abbey, um, he can go back to the place, but not the time. Um, Wordsworth has a set of poems um, called Yarrow um, that he wrote over the course of many years. They're actually really good, even the late ones. And the first one is called Yarrow Unvisited. So he's imagining this place that he hasn't visited. And then later he wrote a poem, you know, obvious next poem, um, when he visited Yarrow, which is called Yarrow Visited. But then later still, he wrote a poem called Yarrow Revisited. And so the idea is that it's different each time because time can't return. But the place is a place you can return to. But if you think of spots of time, you're spatializing time as though you could go back to it. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if this is like kind of a stretch, but like because each of the books like depict a specific like spot in time, if you will, but like they're also defined by their location. Mm -hmm. Like most of them are like nice. yeah. I'm in Cambridge or right. I'm in the Alps. Right. And so like and like even in speech we'll say, Oh, when I was in high school. Right. For example. So like we define our time by location. Yes, great. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know where I'm going with that, but just like the relationship between Well that that's what he's doing throughout is he's spatializing his past. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what we saw in the boat stealing scene, right? That is that as he goes further away, um, the the trigonometry of space allows him a metaphor for the pursuit of the past um, as though the past were still somehow present and coming after him. Although it's not. That's the real problem, is that that time is gone forever. But to spatialize it is to at least imagine a return to it. So yeah, I think that's great. That's great insight. Yeah. So I've been writing a couple things throughout the class, and then we were talking this particular one there with um, spots of time sort of made it more relevant. Um, but you were talking so with spatializing time. I've been thinking about a lot of this where there's you know it's the the continuity of self sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's made it clear to me to think of it. I mean, it's as in like a person's life is a continuous. Function, right? So day to day, it's you know there's very little difference, and so we don't notice the big you know, the changes that happen between when we're five and now. You know, mm -hmm. 
like we don't notice necessarily the distance, but obviously there's a lot of things that have changed. But with this, you know, the spots in time that are significant is almost like those are, at least in math terms, it's like it's a point of inflection. It's where there was sort of a change of trajectory. Yeah. You know, sometimes you notice those right. in the moment, and sometimes you don't. Like when the buzzing goes off. Exactly. Yeah. And so one thing when we were talking about that, I was like, what if it gradually quiets down? You know, if there's not an instant where it turned off, would we still notice it? Or yeah. would it be, you know, five minutes later? Yeah. When there's a lull in the conversation, would we notice at that point and not know when it turned off? Right, right. And would that still make a difference the same way it turned off suddenly? Right. And would there be an inflection point, but now in the past, you could say? Yeah. That is, you're aware that you missed an inflection point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nice, good. Um, Nicole, were you about to say something? No. All right. So um, we have a couple minutes, so let's keep going. Um, Life with me as far as memory... Um, can look back as full of this beneficent influence at a time when scarcely I was not then six years old my hand could hold a bridle so notice how he's remembering it was a time I could hardly hold a bridle oh I must not have been six yet so it's not that he's remembering you know if you remember yourself you may remember yourself at certain ages by what birthday it was or what grade you were in but generally when you remember your early childhood you have to figure out how old you were, if you can, when that memory occurred. But you're not remembering yourself. It's, it's only after the fact that you will so numeralize the, the, the time of your life that you will turn it into um, something that you can give numbers to. Of course you always know how old you are, and when you're you know, five, you're actually more than five and three quarters. <laughs> um, so you're quite aware of it then, except when no one's asking you how old you are. And then it's just um, the past is, is um, just an atmosphere rather than a marked gradation. So my hand could, at the time when, when scarcely my hand could hold a bridle, with proud hopes I mounted, and we rode toward the hills. We were a pair of horsemen. Honest James was with me, my encourager and guide. We had not traveled long ere some mischance disjoined me from my comrade. And through fear, dismounting down the rough and stony moor, I led my horse and stumbling on at length, came to a bottom where in former times a murderer had been hung in iron chains. So there he sees the gibbet on the moor, and he sees the letters there, and just keep, the the letters are all fresh and visible. And to this hour, the letters are all um, fresh and visible. So later on, when he could read, he went to see the letters. Faltering and ignorant where I was at length, I chanced to espy those characters inscribed on the green sod. Forthwith, I left the spot. So that's a spatial spot, but that's also a spot of time. And reascending the bare common, saw a naked pool that lay beneath the hills, the beacon on the summit, and more near, a girl who bore a pitcher on her head and seemed with difficult steps to force her way against the blowing wind, It was, in truth, an ordinary sight, but I should need colors and words that are unknown to man to paint the visionary dreariness which, while I looked all round for my lost guide at that time, invest the naked pool, the beacon on the lonely eminence, the woman and her garments vexed and tossed by the strong wind. So there's a moment that will be unchanging, and he knows that it's unchanging, in his life, because no matter how much time passes, that time stays the same. 
And it's strange and opaque. It's a really weird thing to regard as a spot of time, but he does. It fixes time. Okay, we will look at book 13 on um, Wednesday and then Coleridge. And we also have one, uh, remember we have, have one more class, one long class on our exam day. Um, so Coleridge, uh, what Coleridge do you want to do on Wednesday? There's also more words worth to do, but we should get to Coleridge. We should definitely do Frost at Midnight. Uh, we could do Christabel, we could do The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Oh my God, I hated that. You hated The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner? I hated it. Why? I don't know, I found it like, I get like it's allegory and everything, but I found it really boring. I, I, I'm a very big Charlotte Turner Smith person as opposed to Coleridge, so for me, it's like one or the other. I had to give myself an ultimatum and I chose Charlotte. So you like Beachy Head? Yeah, oh, Beachy Head is great. We didn't get a chance to do it. Sorry? Pirates of Caribbean. Okay. All right. Um, so are we doing Christabel? Someone say what they want to do. The first person to speak gets it. Not Christabel. Okay, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. It's creepy and weird. So is Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Okay. Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, book 13 and Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And we'll have an extra day to do a lot of stuff. Yeah, on um, the exam day we'll have a three-hour seminar. Oh, thank you. Where did you get, find this? And where's mine? I lost my ID, too. You did? I did. Can I have one? <laughs> no, I know. Okay, so I'm 50 lines. Okay. Good. Do you have any tips for how to get better at it? At memorizing? You memorized 50 lines of it? Yeah. I memorized 50 lines of phone? it and then finally decided to do the three Um, You just have to keep adding. That is, yeah. start at line one each time. Yeah. And go forward each time. Yeah. That's it. That's there. I mean, do you know any actors? Do I know any actors? Yeah. No. Oh, that's too bad because they could tell you acting tricks for memorizing lines. I don't know. Go to WikiHow. How do I memorize um, okay. speeches for a play? I'm doing okay. I guess I just keep adding. Yeah. I I would say memorize in sections. I have so, stand. I stand. I try to do chunks that I think are I think they're complete thoughts, so I can finish yeah, the thoughts. Yeah. Then I recommend chunks that aren't complete thoughts. So huh. that it, 